Wednesday, August 7th, 2013, episode number 56 of the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Reamer on footballnation.com. Welcome inside episode number 56 of the Football Nation Today podcast hosted by yours truly Alex Reamer here on this Wednesday, August the 7th, 2013. It is the first Wednesday in August and the first week of preseason football. If you can believe that, the Dolphins and Cowboys got the preseason schedule started off over the weekend with the Hall of Fame game, which is appropriate because those two franchises' most recent successes came decades ago, much like the men who took the podium in Canton, Ohio over the weekend. Oh, I kid. I kid, Dolphins and Cowboys. No, actually, I don't. And you want to know the real crime in this? The Dolphins won't be on Sunday Night Football again this season, which is the right move to make because they haven't been relevant for close to 20 years. The Cowboys, however, will be in prime time four times this season and will be on Sunday night football in a mere four weeks. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what is wrong with America. But enough Cowboys ranting. We did that a couple weeks ago. This week on this program, we're taking a look at the top 10 preseason storylines to get you pumped up for August football. Five from the AFC, five from the NFC, one in each division. You don't want to miss that. That's coming up momentarily in our first down segment. Then the second down segment, we take a look at one of the bigger off-field NFL stories of the past week. This week, it is undoubtedly Eagles receiver Riley Cooper, how the Eagles have handled this thus far, how they should handle it going forward, and how with the prevalence of social media, unfortunately, incidents like this one are going to increase over time, not decrease. Third down segment, it's the Big Upper Slowdown segment, debating topics such as Bill Parcells and whether he's a better coach or general manager. Of course, Tuna, as well as many others, got inducted into the Hall of Fame this weekend. Bill Parcells, of course, used to coach the, used to coach the Patriots, now coached by Bill Belichick. Howard Bryant on ESPN.com wrote a compelling piece this week talking about how Belichick and quarterback Tom Brady owes the public more of an explanation on Aaron Hernandez. We'll talk about whether or not that's true. And also, another season-ending injury at training camp this week, Packers offensive, line, uh, offensive lineman Brian Bulaga suffered a season-ending knee injury. With all these ACL tears and season-ending injuries, should teams reevaluate how they handle training camp and how they treat starting players in the, in the early days of August? We'll discuss, we'll discuss that. And in the fourth down segment, it's the Reamer rant. Terrell Owens' agent says he's talked to a bunch of teams about T.O. returning. Oh, God, give me a break. Football Nation today, back after this. So the preseason schedule kicks off this week, and there are an abundance of storylines across the NFL. A number of things that can make August football almost as entertaining as regular season football. Okay, maybe not. Maybe that's a bit of a stretch, but still, it's football. We're craving football. So it's a good deal. 
In the AFC, one of the biggest storylines I'm looking out for, we talked about this a few weeks ago on the show, as I'm interested in seeing how Patriots quarterback Tom Brady meshes with his new receivers. You know the, st- you know the statistics. You know all the changes that have happened with the Patriots' offense this offseason. Some of those changes they brought, about, they brought upon themselves, you know, not re-signing with Welker. Other changes were brought upon them by outside forces they cannot control. Rob Gronkowski, Aaron Hernandez, of course. So we'll see how Brady meshes with his new receivers. Over the past several years, Brady has not meshed well with new receivers. And we'll see how much Brady plays this preseason and if he can and how much live action he gets with his new wideout targets. Because it's one thing to practice with them, but it's another thing to play in a game with them. And another note about Brady, he suffered his 36th birthday over the weekend, and that's led to a bit of a debate around these parts over the past couple of days. Tom Brady, is he better at 36 than he was at 26? And on the surface, you would say yes. Tom Brady at 36 is a better quarterback than he was at 26. You forget at 26, yes, Patriots won three Super Bowls in four years, but those were teams that were far more balanced than the recent incarnations of the Patriots. Those were teams that relied on a stable running game as well. It was not on Tom Brady 10 years ago when this team was winning titles. Over the past five or six years, it really has been all on Brady's shoulders, and as he's aged, he's taken on more responsibility, and he's done magnificently well. So at 36, yeah, I think Tom Brady is a better quarterback than he was 10 years ago. But in big games, he hasn't been. If you dig a little deeper, that statement may not be quite as true as it would seem. In Brady's first 10 career playoff games, he went 10-0, with a 14-3 touchdown-to-interception ratio. Since then, since 2005, when the Patriots lost in the divisional round against Denver, Brady has a 28-19 touchdown-to-interception ratio in the postseason. Not good, especially in comparison to Brady's career numbers. So about the offensive attack this season, I'm just curious to see how it looks early on in August. I'm curious to see if the Patriots make an honest attempt to run the ball more. With Steven Ridley and Shane Vereen, the Patriots did have some success running the ball last season. Ridley had a nice year. But was their success on the ground because they had a good passing attack and teams were playing the pass and gave the Patriots the run? Or did they have a good running attack because, well, they have good running backs? We'll see. This is the year to find out. And I think we'll get an early glimpse of it this preseason. I would expect Ridley to get a lot of carries early on. As we've also said before on this show, I'm very curious to see how the Patriots' defense plays together this season. It's rare to say this for a Bill Belichick coach team, but over the past couple of seasons, I think the defense hasn't been as great as the sum of its parts, if that makes sense. I think this team has better talent than they've shown. We talk about all the first and second round picks on that defense. Akib Tlaib, Devin McCourty, Brandon Spikes, Gerard Mayo, Vince Wilfork, Dante Hightower, Chandler Jones. Down on the line, a lot of early first, second, third round picks on that defense 
that's been closer to the bottom of the league than the top of the league over the past two to three seasons. So is this the year where finally the defense plays up to its talent level? They'll have to early on because I truly think through the first few weeks of the season, this is going to be an offense in transition. By the end of it, I would expect the offense to be right back up towards the top of the league in points scored because Tom Brady, even at 36, is too good. As we've discussed, I think Brady at 36 is a better regular season quarterback than he was at 26. And if you look at it in another way, maybe the fact that the Patriots will not be as reliant on the pass early on, in the end, will be a good thing for this team. They'll be able to develop more of a balanced attack. They'll be able to develop more of a running game. The defense will step up and win them some games early on. They may suffer through some adversity through the first two months of the season, but maybe in the final two months and in January, they'll be better off for it. It's a year in transition for the Patriots. I'm very curious to see if they change the way they play on offense, how the defense progresses, and if they start winning games on defense. And that whole process begins this Friday night in their first preseason game. The Ravens are the defending Super Bowl champions. And they have a completely new look offense. Anquan Bolden is now a 49er. Dennis Pitta has been lost for the season. Last week on the show I said that's the most crippling loss of all the players who have been lost for the season this preseason. And now tight end Ed Dixon suffered a tear in his hamstring this week. We'll see how long he is out. And we'll see if Joe Flacco can now make those around him better rather than the other way around, which is what I certainly think the case was last season. And as far as the rest of the AFC North goes, I'm very curious to watch the Bengals this year. The Bengals are that team that's on the right track. They've made the postseason two years in a row. A.J. Smith is one of the best wide receivers in the football. I like Andy Dalton as quarterback now in his third season. What I especially like about the Bengals is their defense. It's more of a veteran-based group. Play physically have a strong pass rush, some good skilled players there as well. Marvin Lewis is at his core, a defensive guy. The Bengals are one of those teams that's been trending in the right direction. And it's an open AFC North this season. The Steelers on paper may have the best team in the division, but health is always the question there. And the guys on that defense are certainly not getting any younger. The Ravens have undergone a complete roster remake following their Super Bowl season. That may be Cincinnati's division to take. And I'm not a huge believer of momentum. I don't think it means all that much carrying momentum from the preseason to the regular season. But the Bengals do have the ability to send a bit of a message this August and say, hey, we're the deepest team in this division because Baltimore's undergone so many changes and Pittsburgh with all their injuries is shuffling guys in and out. You know, shuffling a number of guys in and out for the past number of seasons. We've played together now for three years. We've been healthy for three years. We're ready to take the mantle. We're ready to take this division. We'll see how Cincinnati looks opening up this week. And also, Hard Knocks debuts on HBO. And the Bengals, of course, are this year's subjects. Hmm. Adam Jones featured in Hard Knocks debuting on HBO. I'm sure that's very exciting for all of us. But yeah, yeah, Mike Brown, yeah. Void's Aaron Hernandez, but Adam Jones, yeah, I still sign his paychecks. Please, what a hypocrite. I'm curious to look at the Colts in the AFC South. Now, conventional wisdom would say Houston, like Cincinnati, is on that upward trend. They make the playoffs two years ago. Then last year, they won a playoff game. 
Now, are they ready to win two playoff games this season? I'm not sure about that because unlike the Bengals, I think the Texans may have hit their ceiling. The way that their operation completely came apart in New England last season in the divisional round uh, really, really turned me into a non-believer with the Texans. Uh, I think they may have reached their ceiling. I think the AFC South is relatively open this season, and that means it could be an opportunity for Andrew Luck and the Colts to sneak in there. But if you look a little deeper into the Colts and their winning record last year, you see it may, may have been more of a fluke than anything else. I mean, they had a lot of come-from-behind victories, which on one hand points to Andrew Luck's, you know, points to Andrew Luck's ability to lead a team and points to Andrew Luck's ability and his gravitas to perform under pressure. But it also tells you that there was a lot of the fluke element there as well with the Colts because it's just not statistically sustainable to have so many come from behind victories. They struggled against good opponents. They beat up on bad opponents. They had a bat. They had an easy schedule because they were the worst team in football two years ago. And that's fine. I'm not necessarily taking anything away from them. You still have to win every week. And winning every week is a hard thing to do in the NFL. But there are naysayers with the Colts. And those naysayers maybe have a case following last season, calling it a bit of a fluke. So you look at this season for the Colts. They made some additions to their defense. Didn't add any stars, though, but added some veteran players for depth. We'll see how that goes. The defense should be a little bit better. But really, for the Colts, it's all about Andrew Luck. And my question is, will Luck be crisper this season? Because you look at his statistics, he had a 54.1 completion percentage, which is terrible. In today's NFL, if you're not completing 60% of your passes, you suck. And he also threw 18 interceptions last season, more than an interception per game. So if the Colts are ready to take that next step, Andrew Luck has to be crisper. And I'm not sure if the Colts can rely on that second-half magic or more specifically, late fourth quarter magic this year, like they did last year, when they'll be playing a tougher schedule and taking on better opponents on a week-to-week -week basis. And the Broncos will have a strong schedule this season, although they play in the AFC West, so though their schedule outside division may be strong, their interdivisional schedule not strong, that means the Broncos should coast into the playoffs. If he had to take bets early on in August, Super Bowl favorites out of the AFC, I think Denver would have to be on that list. And my question with the Broncos this preseason isn't how their offense will look. I know the offense will be fine. I don't know if it'll be fine come January with Peyton Manning under center, but I know from September through December in the AFC West, it'll be more than fine. One of the top, if not the top offense in the league. My question with the Broncos is, how will their defense look? That defense looked really old last season. Joe Flacco picked them apart in the playoffs. In Denver, by the way. They added Dominique Rodgers-Cromartie to the secondary, Sean Phillips to the linebacking core. Two big names, but two older names as well, especially Phillips. And I wonder if the Broncos are counting on Phillips to take up, to replace, rather, some of Elvis Dumerville's lost production. I know Denver was counting on Von Miller to do that, but he may miss the first, game, the first four games of the season due to a suspension. And that secondary is not getting any younger. They add Rodgers Cromartie, but Champ Bailey is another year older. He looked like he was 55 last season trying to cover those Ravens receivers down the sideline in the postseason. So that Denver defense may be the key. You know the offense will score a lot of points, and it may not matter all that much in the regular season. But come the playoffs, as we know, 
In today's NFL, even though it's a passing-oriented league, in the playoffs, the referees loosen things up a little bit. You can play more physically. You need to win with balance. And I'm not sure if the balance is there with the Broncos, which may hold them back this year when all is said and done. We'll see that defense this month. If the defense looks old in early August, there's no way they won't look old in December or January. So this is it to see how that Broncos defense looks early on, that aging Broncos defense, and how they replace arguably their most skilled player, Elvis Dumerville. And Miller, their other most skilled player, will be lost for possibly the first four weeks of the regular season. And then moving back to the AFC East to close out the AFC portion of the show, this is more of a joke than anything else because I know I've ranted and raved about how the Cowboys receive too much attention. So I'm a bit of a hypocrite talking about the Jets here, but I am fascinated to see how Jets fans react to Mark Sanchez this month. Antonio Cromartie came to Sanchez's defense, said it's bullcrap for fans to boost Sanchez, as they did during a scrimmage over the weekend. Rex Ryan took to the podium and said Jets fans should move forward and forget the past with Sanchez, give him another chance. It's nice to defend your teammate, and it's nice to defend your player if you're Coach Rex Ryan. But telling the fans how to act, especially Jets fans, is never winning play. I mean, if you're a season ticket holder for that team, and if you're making the drive to upstate New York to watch that abomination of a football team practice, then you should be fanned and fed grapes. Really. So, <laughs> I understand where Cromartie's coming from. I understand where Rex Ryan, the coach, is coming from. And Sanchez even said this week, he's glad Cromartie and his other teammates have his back. That's good. A show of unity. Something that's sorely been lacking with the Jets over the past couple of seasons. But it's never a winning play to tell the fans how to react. Especially Jets fans, given all they've been through, not just the past two years, but try the past 40 plus years since they last won a Super Bowl. So how about in the NFC? Well, the other team, New York, in the, the, uh, in the Giants. Very interested to see them and what we see out of their quarterback, Eli Manning. You look at Manning's numbers last season. He had a rather pedestrian quarterback rating of 87.2. I know QB, ra QB rating is a rather flawed statistic, but it gives you a decent barometer of how a guy performed last season. 87.2 in today's NFL is rather pedestrian. And Manning, once again, will be expected to carry the offensive load this season. I'm also curious to see that Giants defense, which looked out of whack at times last year, especially the secondary, one of the worst passing defenses in all of football. Uh, the Giants got a break last year because they're, they were coming off a Super Bowl win in the NFC East. So we're all focused on the Redskins and the emergence of Robert Griffin. But now let's look at Tom Coughlin and the Giants. The team looked really out of looked in real disarray last season. Remember that late season, regular season game against Baltimore, a must win for the Giants, and they just get smoked, come out, get smoked, and even give you much of an effort there in that ball game. And I think a lot of us excused the Giants' poor performance from a season ago, especially on defense. They were so bad on defense because, well, they're the Giants, defending Super Bowl champs, two Super Bowls recently, they'll turn it on when they need to, they know how to win, all those cliches, and they didn't turn it on. They didn't win when it mattered most at the end of last regular season. So we gave the Giants a pass this year. You know New York, they won't get a pass this time around, and we'll see how they look coming out this week. Uh, we'll also see how Adrian Peterson 
and the Vikings look, how will Peterson look after his heavy workload last season? And will the Vikings put more of the offensive burden on quarterback Christian Ponder? They did get Ponder another weapon in Greg Jennings, who may have stoked a bit of a rivalry there with the Packers with some comments he made about Aaron Rodgers over the weekend, in which Jennings said, quote, Don't get me wrong, 12 is a great person. Well, of course, referring to Rodgers. But when you hear all positives, all positives, all positives all the time, it's hard for you to sit down and one of your teammates says, man, come on, you've got to hold yourself accountable for this. It's hard for someone to see that now because all they've heard is, I'm doing it the right way, I'm perfect, in actuality, we all have flaws. Now, Jennings said he was joking with those comments and Rodgers knows he was joking there, not a big deal. But still, kind of a weird thing to say, because we don't all know Greg Jennings personally. We don't know his personality. We don't know when he's joking, not joking. May have poked the bear a little bit with Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. And I'm always in favor of more rivalries, especially in the old school NFC North. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, Jennings there is essentially saying we all have flaws and Aaron Rodgers isn't as perfect as you people in the media portray him to be. And it's going to be a big year for Jennings in Minnesota because we know about the shelf life of running backs. The large road Peterson carried last season, less than a year removed from major surgery. I don't know if the Vikings can count on Peterson to carry as big a load going forward this season. So we'll see if more of the offensive burden falls on the shoulders of Christian Ponder. In the NFC South, you know, the offensive burden there is going to fall on the quarterbacks. Matt Ryan with the Falcons, Drew Brees with the Saints. Cam Newton with the Panthers, who we'll talk about next. The Buccaneers will look to combat all the quarterbacks in their division with an improved pass defense. They added Darrell Reeves to the secondary, who as of this recording has said he's almost certain to play in week one against the Jets. That should be a hell of a matchup. Mark Barron, the young safety, gets another year to progress as well. They added Deshaun Goldson to the secondary. So the Buccaneers... Trying it old school, right? The best way to shut down good passing attacks is a good pass defense. We'll see. And we'll also see what second-year head coach Greg Schiano, who around the league will forever be remembered as the guy who blitzed the victory formation last year. Now, we talk about college coaches and how a lot of the rah-rah stuff doesn't quite mix in the NFL. Mixed bag of results for Shiano last year. All that talk last training camp about he's trying to toughen up the Bucks following Raheem Morris. And now he's going to hold everyone more accountable. Play the full 60 minutes. Rah, rah, siskumba. And if you were to believe some of the reports coming out of Tampa Bay last season, uh, not all the players were uh, amused by Shiano. Not all the players bought in. He gets another opportunity. He's in his second year. Wondering how Shiano kind of curtails his act a little bit this season, and if he tries to make himself a little more NFL-friendly, ingratiate himself a little more with those veteran players, cuts down a little bit of the rah-rah Siskumba stuff, because uh, I think that got tiring at times last season. I mean, they blitzed a victory formation. Come on. I mean, in theory, I understand what Shiano was getting at. You play to win. Game's not over yet, so we're not going to stop playing, but come on. I mean, the unwritten rule in the league is you don't blitz the victory formation. And I think that a lot, of, and, and, and I think that one play right there kind of symbolizes Shiano's first year in the league, good intentions, mixed results, 
and the good intentions, a lot of the veteran players don't always buy into that because the way you do it in college isn't necessarily how you do it in the pros. They talked with the pressure that's on Cam Newton. I'm just curious what he'll do to agitate people this summer. I mean, he can never win down there. He really can't. If he's too emotional and too high-strung, he's not mature enough. If he isn't emotional enough, he doesn't care. So what is it? And many people have commented about Newton over the years, especially last season, talking about how much of a factor race plays into it. I don't want to get into that right now, but it might be a factor. I don't know. I mean, it seems as if Cam Newton can never win, de- can never win down there. And he's the best player on that team. He's by far the most skilled player on that team. He doesn't really have anything around him. Steve Smith, into his 30s, is still his number one receiving option. Doesn't give Newton a lot of flexibility there. They have no consistent running game whatsoever. The defense was atrocious last season and didn't get all that better this offseason. So, it all falls on Newton's shoulders. I think unfairly so, down there with the Panthers. A lot of pressure there as well. Just curious to see what Newton does to agitate people this summer. Because you know he'll do something. And it'll probably be something unfounded, but, you know, people will talk. So, curious to see what the controversy will be with him this August. And I'm curious to see how the Seahawks will manage the heightened expectations this season. How they'll manage an offense without Percy Harvin, who they're undoubtedly counting on to be a big contributor this season. And how their defense will look following a year in which they dealt with a lot of PED suspensions. Richard Sherman and others have spoken up about the defense needs to be more responsible and more mature. If we're to believe them, and they're off the PEDs there in Seattle, which by the way, I know because I think in the NFL, it's 98.5% of players who use, roughly so, some sort of PED. I think you have to in that league. You listen to Bill Parcells this past Saturday night in Canton talk about, oh guys, you're getting... Wheeled onto the plane in IVs and just the sacrifice those guys put on the field and what they put their bodies through, it would be impossible, as far as I'm concerned, not to make it through the season and, God forbid, the playoffs without some sort of medicinal help, medicinal aid. Um, but we'll see about that defense. You know the microscope will be on those guys this season, especially after all the PED suspensions last season. And it's tough to enter a training camp with heightened expectations. Last year, Pete Carroll and the Seahawks had the luxury of being a little bit under the radar. And they came out strong with Russell Wilson and Marshawn Lynch. And the defense was one of the best units in the league. Well, now people are going into the season game planning for that Seattle defense, that Seattle passing defense. So we'll see how the Seahawks respond this season to heightened expectations and how they carry themselves through the early portions of training camp and the early preseason schedule. Moving on to the second down segment, take a look at one of the bigger off-field NFL stories of the past week. And this week, it's on Eagles wide receiver, maybe soon to be former Eagles wide receiver, Riley Cooper. The Eagles excused Cooper from the team and sent him home for counseling late last week after teammates largely ignored him at practice. Running back LaShawn McCoy spoke out and said he can't really respect Cooper going forward after Cooper went on a race-filled tirade at a Kenny Chesney concert last week after he was denied backstage access. And Cooper said he will fight every N-word in this building, or every N-word here, I believe was his uh, proper, I believe was uh, his, his, his actual quote. 
Um, I understand that the Eagles and owner Jeffrey Lurie want to get out in front of this early and act swiftly on Cooper. But they should have taken their time with this, at least a little bit more. They should have held a meeting with the team captains and team leaders to find out what the best course of action should be going forward. Because ultimately, it comes down to whether the players in that locker room are okay with going to battle with Cooper. To go back to Parcells' Hall of Fame speech, he spoke about the kind of sacrifice it takes to play professional football. And how you have to be all in. And if there are members on that team, that offensive line, for example, who don't want to block for Cooper, that's a problem. And he can't stick around. I think Jeffrey Lurie, Chip Kelly, and the Eagles made a bit of an error when they didn't hold a meeting with their team leaders, leaders before they acted last week. And speaking of Chip Kelly, can you believe that, huh? What a bleep storm for that guy to walk in. His first training camp in the league and has to deal with this? Come on, guy does not catch a break. Now, I don't have a problem with all of the criticism that's coming Cooper's way. Maybe he had a bad night. Maybe. Though I know when I get angry, I don't threaten to beat up all the N-words in the building because, well, I'm not a racist. And language is all about context. And the context in which Cooper said that word certainly does not make it look good. You add on the fact he was at a Kenny Chesney concert, long hair, you know, long blonde hair, plaid shirt, cut off at the sleeves. It's not a good look. He looked like a racist at a country music concert. And because it wasn't a good look, and because of the con it's such a big deal because of the context in which he used that word in. It was alarming to watch that video. And we're in an era now where you can't say anything. You can't be racist. You can't be a bigot. And if you are, you get in real trouble. You have to go away forever. Just ask Paula Dean. And a lot of that testimony was more hearsay than anything else. But this kind of stuff is not tolerated anymore. I even go back to this year's NBA playoffs. Switching sports for a second, but Pacers center Roy Hibbert got fined a quarter of a million dollars for making an innocuous no-homo comment during a press conference at the end of a playoff game this spring. But he got fined all that money because those comments, even in an innocuous fashion, and Cooper's comments certainly were not innocuous. But the point is, making demeaning comments, no matter the context, is inexcusable. Especially in the context in which Cooper made his comments. So if I were Chip Kelly, if I were Jeffrey Lurie, if I were the Eagles organization, I would sit down with my team leaders and ask them point blank. Do you feel comfortable playing with this guy going forward? Because Chip Kelly, as a first-year head coach, cannot make that determination by himself. He cannot decide without conferring with his team leaders, without conferring with the other players on that team. Oh, you know what? We're going to make it work. We're all Philadelphia Eagles. Cooper comes back. Or, you know what? This behavior isn't tolerated. He's out of here. Because maybe some players in that locker room do feel Cooper just had a bad night. And do feel like he should receive another opportunity. I don't know. I'm not in that locker room. I don't know what guys feel. I wouldn't put it up to a vote, because I think that could get sloppy as well. What if it's not a landslide vote? What if it's 60-40? Then what do you do? And what if it, even worse, is along racial lines? So, I don't think Chip Kelly should put it up to a vote, but I do think they need to have several conversations with the team leaders on that squad 
and find out what Cooper's teammates want to do about him. And if they say he has to go, I don't care Jeremy Macklin's been lost for the season. I don't care if we were counting on Cooper to take a lot of his receptions, take a lot of his time as a second wide receiver. Jason Avant can go in that role. Someone else can go in that role. If that's what his teammates say about him, then you got to let it go. you got to leave it up to the teammates in this respect. And yeah, it does seem as if we're getting a lot of these kinds of incidents. Nothing quite like Cooper, but we're getting a lot of these incidents. And it's because I think people, or I know people, have always been stupid and have always been flawed. We are not perfect. And unfortunately, with social media, that stupidity and somebody's flaws are now broadcasted to the world. So it's either we ask players to not go out, and not go to concerts, and not go out to restaurants, or bars, or clubs. It's either we ask players to just stay in, and not join the 21st century, and get Twitter, and other forms of social media, or we have to accept the fact that these kind of things are going to happen with great frequency. I remember in the comment thread of my show last week, in which you talked about Johnny Manziel, who, oh, by the way, another week, another Manziel, another Manziel scandal, this time getting money for autograph signings, which I think is more of a commentary on the stupid rule than Manziel. Right, that's a conversation for a different day. But, you know, I remember going back and forth with people in the comments section last week on the show page on footballnation.com talking about uh, Manziel's use of social media and how he needs to grow up a little bit, how he needs to express himself better on Twitter. And I don't disagree with that, but I also said... I mean, a lot of adults struggle with social media. A lot of prominent sports media types struggle with how to handle themselves on Twitter. I remember Jason Whitlock a year and a half ago making a joke about Jeremy Lin's penis size because Lin, of course, is Asian and, yeah, you know that joke, real highbrow stuff. But really, I mean, even well-educated, high-respected sports media pundits struggle at times with the use of Twitter and other social media. So... If these guys with a ton of college degrees and a ton of – I mean, their business is communication if you're in the media. If they struggle with Twitter at times, you can only imagine what an athlete who doesn't have that background faces with Twitter, especially athletes in their early 20s like many of these players are. So, unfortunately, I don't see a stop to this. Unless players become shut-ins and don't join the 21st century, I think we're going to see stuff like this happen with greater frequency. I do, unfortunately, I just don't see an end in sight, and that's not a commentary on modern-day athletes, that's not a commentary on this generation, that's a commentary on the landscape we now live in. People have always been flawed, people have always been stupid, especially when they get some liquor in them. And now those flaws are broadcasted to the world. Third down segment, it's a big upper slowdown segment in which I say a statement then express my agreement or disagreement with that statement by saying pick up or slow down. Question number one, a lot of Parcells talk. And I bring up Parcells a lot because I was enamored with his Hall of Fame speech this weekend. It wasn't Tuna in his prime, but Parcells to me is such a larger-than-life figure, and you just saw the respect he commands around the league, Sean Payton, Belichick, many others leaving their training camps to see him inducted into the Hall of Fame. Now, and I like that ceremony as well. I mean, you can say what you want about Warren Sapp and some of the other guys who were inducted, but I think the NFL does a real nice job with their ceremony. It makes it like a real show. I mean, compare that to Major League Baseball. who didn't induct a living person 
into the Hall of Fame this season. I mean, come on. You see the two differences between the two leagues, NFL and MLB. Just look at their Hall of Fame ceremonies. My God. Um, but, hey, baseball inducted a dude who caught barehanded and retired in 1890. Deacon, uh, you know, Deacon White. It was like 125 years coming. A long time coming for him. Uh, but Bill Parcells and others were inducted to the Hall of Fame. And my question is, looking at Parcells and his body of work, is he a better coach or is he a better GM? This isn't necessarily pick up, slow down. It's an either or, but it's in the same spirit. And I say, Parcells was a great coach, won a Super Bowl with the Giants. Certainly, that team performed more, uh, performed better than the sum of its parts, especially on offense. I know they had Lawrence Taylor and other guys on defense, but that offense was mediocre at best, and Parcells elevated them to a championship level. He took each of the four teams he coached in the league to the postseason. It is Bill Parcells who is responsible for bringing real professional football to New England. So he was a great coach, no doubt about it. Had success everywhere he went. But he was also an even greater GM. So I say Belichick, rather Parcells, see Belichick's the opposite. I think Belichick is one of the greatest coaches of all time and just an above average GM. Which isn't a criticism. I mean, above average is above average. But Par- Belichick is a guy who I think is a better coach than a general manager. I think Parcells is the other way around. I think Tuna is a better GM than a coach. You look at some of his drafts. I mean, just look at him. Built up that Cowboys team to be what it is. And I know, they're a 500 team. But still, DeMarcus Ware, a lot of the core there. Parcells draft picks. Made the playoffs with that group as well. Jets, Giants, certainly. And you look at the Patriots from 1993 through 1996. Check out these drafts. Parcells drafted in that three-year span. Drew Bledsoe, Chris Slade, Willie McGinnis, and then look at the first three rounds in 95 and 96. Listen to this. 95, first three rounds. Ty Law, Ted Johnson, Curtis Martin. 96, first three rounds. Terry Glenn, Royer Malloy, Teddy Bruschi. Come on. I rest my case. Speaking of the Patriots, moving on to them today. Howard Bryant, one of the more respected columnists going today on ESPN.com, wrote a provocative piece this week in which he said, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick owe the public more of an explanation on Aaron Hernandez. Pick up or slow down. Is that true? I say slow down. It is not true. I respectfully disagree with Mr. Bryant. I think Belichick handled himself perfectly at that press conference two weeks ago. He didn't stand up there and grunt into the microphone. He was human. Answered all the questions he could have. Belichick said he was personally disappointed with Hernandez. And Belichick has never showed he has any feelings as well especially a personal feeling of disappointment before. So I think Belichick handled that as best he could two weeks ago. Brady didn't really address it, but outside of platitudes, what did he have to offer? It's an ongoing criminal investigation. I don't think Brady or many other guys on that team hung out with Hernandez in the offseason. The looming issue here is the Flophouse in Franklin. The reports that some football players hung out with Hernandez at that flop house, but football players is a vague term. Do they mean Patriot players? 
Or do they mean semi-pro football players like Odin Lloyd was a semi-pro football player? I don't know. Obviously, a big difference there. But the Patriots had to address it. They did address it. And now they moved on. And now they have to worry about winning football games. Now they have to worry about making sure that defense progresses. Now they have to worry with making sure Brady meshes with all of his new wide receivers and tight ends. And that's what the fans want out of Belichick. That's what the fans want out of Brady. And that's what the fans want out of the Patriots. Fans care about winning football games. That's pretty much it. And until the next shoe drops with Hernandez, the Patriots don't have to say anything more about it. They've addressed it, and now they've rightfully moved on. Final question here in the big upper slowdown. Packers left tackle Brian Bulaga suffered a season-ending knee injury during a weekend scrimmage. He joins Percy Harvin, Dennis Pitter, and Jeremy Macklin, who have also suffered season-ending injuries or close to season-ending injuries early on in training camp. So big up or slow down, do we have an epidemic on our hands? And do teams need to change the way they conduct them, uh, conduct early preseason practices? I say slow down. We do not have an epidemic on our hands, and teams do not need to change the way they conduct early preseason practices. Why are all these ACL tears happening, all these season-ending injury, season injuries happening early on? I think it's because players do too much in the offseason, add too much muscle. If you add too much muscle, your joints tighten up. I know if you train in a <clears throat> certain fashion, you can be more apt to pull out joints in the like. But teams shouldn't hold back. They have to go through with the regular training camp. They have to make, through, make sure their veterans are in shape at the start of August. And it's up to those veteran players to train differently. You're not in a bodybuilding competition. You're preparing your body to play football. And if you're tearing up joints and blowing out knees and all that stuff in the early weeks of training camp, when you're not even really doing anything yet, that's your problem. That's not the team's. I'm not saying you'd be stupid and run these guys into the mud. But according to reports, these guys aren't doing anything out of the ordinary. They're tearing up joints, season-ending injuries, when the teams aren't really doing that much. So it's unfortunate, and you'd like to avoid it if possible. But I just don't know if there's a way to avoid this. I think you just have to go about your business, and whoever keeps up, keeps up. It may be heartless, but this is pro football. Come on. Of course it's heartless. Closing out the show, the fourth down segment is the Reamer rant. Terrell Owens' agent said this week, He's talked to a bunch of teams about T.O.'s services. Owens is now 39 years of age. Last played in 2010 with the Bengals. Look at his numbers. Actually pretty good. 72 receptions for 983 yards. But at this point in his career, Owens is not worth the headache. There's a reason the Seahawks cut him last summer. And you know, there was a portion in his career. When I used to respect T.O., I think he's a gamer, or was a gamer. I look at the Super Bowl in 2004 with the Eagles, in which he played through a sprained ankle and a fractured fibula. He had nine receptions for 122 yards in that game as well. And I don't think Owens received the proper credit 
and the proper amount of accolades for playing through those injuries in that year's Super Bowl and playing as well as he played. So I had an immense amount of respect for Owens' competitiveness. I really did. I was a T.O. fan not too many years ago. But now at 39 nearing 40, out of the league for three seasons, the time has long passed for him to make a return. He's a clown now who wants to play football because he's desperate for the limelight and desperate for the money. Terrell Owens never grew up. He never stopped being a baby. And for a time, you could keep up with that because the production was too great to ignore. But when the production decreases and the personality is the same, it's tough to put up with that. I mean, there's a reason why this guy has been out of the league for three years. As we've seen this offseason, with all the arrests around the NFL, teams will put up with a lot if a player can still play. Unfortunately for Owens, he cannot still play. He is not worth the headache. And that's why he rightfully doesn't have a job at the start of training camp. And that's why he rightfully will not get a job again this season. Give it up. Join the reality show circuit full-time. Not quite as lucrative as the NFL, but hey, you get the exposure, you'll get some money in your pocket, and you'll actually get rewarded for being like a petulant child. Ooh, imagine that. Thank you, as always, for tuning in to another edition the Football Nation Today podcast, episode number 56. As always, if you want to send me an email, drop me a line, areamer at bu.edu is my email address, and also feel free to give me a follow on Twitter, at alexreamer1 is my Twitter handle. Preseason football this week, beyond excited for it here at Football Nation Today, and we'll be back to recap the first week of preseason action and talk with the biggest storylines around the league on next Wednesday, on next Wednesday's show. So long, talk to you then.